0: Welcome to Therapy on the Cutting Edge, a podcast for therapists who want to be up-to-date on the latest advancements in the field of psychotherapy. I'm your host, Dr. Keith Sutton, a psychologist in the San Francisco Bay Area and the director of the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy. Today I'll be speaking with Celia Falakoff, PhD, who is a clinical psychologist and family therapist in San Diego, California. Celia is the director of the mental health services at the student-run free clinic project of the Department of Family Medicine at the University of California, San Diego. She is also a past president of the American Family Therapy Academy and has published numerous books and articles, including Family Transitions, Continuity and Change Over the Life Cycle, Cultural Perspectives in Family Therapy and Latino Families in Therapy, and has co authored the book Multiculturalism and Diversity in Clinical Supervision. Let's listen to the interview. Well, hi, Celia. Welcome.
1: Uh, Hi, Keith, good to see you and to say hello,
0: yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. So I uh, know of your work from, of course, reading uh, your work in graduate school, and particularly I think my first introduction was in uh, Monica McGoldrick's Family Life Cycle book. Um, I got to see you at the Association of Family Therapists of Northern California Conference when you came for the weekend um, teaching about working um, uh, with Latinx families, um, and uh, particularly, you know, just been interested in your work and was, you know, reaching out to you to see what you've been up to lately and now. And um, so but first, before we got into that, because you, you sent on some great articles and some of the process kind of work you're doing and in, in kind of looking at, you know, collaboration with clients uh, and therapists, particularly in, in low income and diverse uh, uh, populations. But before we even get into that, I'd love to hear Your story, I'm always interested in folks kind of evolution of their thinking and how they got to be thinking about what they were working on today. Okay, okay. Uh, So I
1: don't know how much uh, you know about sort of my personal history, but I think it is somewhere, uh, I think um, importantly connected to my way of thinking and my development as a therapist. Um, I was born and raised in Argentina and I'm actually the first person in my family born in Argentina, because my parents and my grandparents were immigrants. And uh, so a little bit of the paradox of my life is that I grew up in an environment of immigrants. And, but I also came to this country fairly early in my life. I newly married. And, uh, and so then, and, and for you know, sociopolitical reasons, We could not really return because there was a military dictatorship and Mm -hmm. my husband and I had been somewhat involved on political things that were left wing and at that time it was a right wing dictatorship, so we remain in this country, Mm
2: -hmm. so I
1: have a lot of personal experience of immigration and. and I also have, I think, a lot of personal experience of living in a very large environment, large family, mm-hmm. large extended family with my parents and my grandparents living very close to each other in a radius of about two or three blocks. I had all my aunts and ankles on both sides. of So because they were immigrants fleeing the violence of Europe towards Jews at that time uh, for programs and... Uh, you know, recently, uh, I found out something that I had never written about, mm. uh, that uh, in doing some research on my family immigration history, and I don't know whether they knew this either, uh, was that the uh, person that I have, that was, my name was given to me by my great, uh, my grandmother, then mm. uh, it was the name of her mother. And, uh, and the same thing is true with my brother, the name of her father, both of those people, and three more uh, died in uh, concentration camps, mm, oh, and, and we, you know, didn't know that until the last year, where I did some research. So I, I am have always been very aware that sociopolitical events, you know, that social context, influence a family's life in ways that are beyond their control. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure that you know they didn't want to leave; that was their home. Yeah and so but they had to and that has uh, created a great deal of empathy uh, towards the immigrant uh, uh, for me and um, and so um, maybe I will be um, saying something that I'm jumping to my work but I want to say that I believe that one of the things that I've done from the very beginning is include and culture also context uh-huh. Uh, because it completely uh, you know, alters the situation. And I also think that it's very important for people to learn about the impact of immigration in mm-hmm. family lives, which yeah. is very different than looking at culture in a fixed way, you
0: know, mm-hmm.
1: uh, or culture as separate from context.
0: So. Yeah. so kind of thinking about culture on the bigger context, but also on the individual experience of through immigration or kind of those multiple kind of layers
1: Yes, yes. And that, you know, we talk about cultural competence, but the truth is that we should also have migration specific uh, Mm -hmm. competencies. Yeah. And I have, I think a lot of my work is, you know, it reflects that, reflects an interest in understanding immigrant family processes.
0: Mm -hmm. Definitely. Okay.
1: so tell me again, what question you were asking me about my background? Yeah, uh, so your evolution oh, of, your,
0: yes. of your thinking. So yeah, so you're talking about kind of your experience mm-hmm. with um, uh, with migration yourself and uh, yeah, I would love to yes, yes. other experience that's kind of led to your thinking.
1: And also being the first child born in a different country, yeah. it put me very much in the position of a cultural broker between mm-hmm. cultures.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and as we know, the second generation many times does, you know, yeah. and uh, so and that was also a kind of separation, uh, you know, emotional separation, because I was the first one to go to school, the first one to be educated, and so I, in many ways, I lived in two worlds, mm-hmm. and uh, and so that I think I, I thought that the way uh, of growth was education. And, uh, and education was free in Argentina. So that's where I really started going to the University of Buenos Aires. And I first started with philosophy because I was very interested in philosophy and I still am, um, but uh, I decided that I, that also it was important to make a living.
0: And, yeah. <laughs>
1: and, I was in, and psychology was part of philosophy at that time. Mm. And so that's how I started studying psychology but then, in my early twenties, got married at age twenty, actually, and uh, my husband was a physician
3: mm-hmm.
1: and was just out of medical school, and so we came together uh, uh, for postgraduate training for him. And so, eventually, I, uh, after having different jobs, you no, know, mm-hmm. as an EKG technician, as a file clerk. I began studying back in the United States. It was very important to me. uh, And I had to do a lot of equivalencies. You Mm -hmm. know, like learning American history, learning American geography, uh, so that I could have the equivalent of an undergraduate degree here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then I went for a master's in psychology to Loyola University. Mm -hmm. and, And I was very lucky during an externship. I met a professor who said, But you should really should go on towards a PhD. And I said, Well, no, it's impossible. I can't afford a PhD. And and it Mm -hmm. wasn't a time where you could really get great scholarships. And I was very lucky I was able to. And the place that I decided to go into that had psychology as part of it was at the University of Chicago, uh, the Committee on Human Development. And the reason Bring this up is that it is very important to what happens to me professionally. Mm. I think it's probably the best thing that happened in my life. Yeah, you know, I, I love the program, I love the university, but also, um, it, it taught me that you need more than one discipline to understand, you know, human phenomena. And that committee was anthropology, sociology, biology, and psychology, and so. And every stage of the life cycle was seen through those four lenses. Okay. Oh, and so I learned to think culturally and developmentally all the time. And I think I brought that into learning about family therapy. Mm. Um, my dissertation actually was going from a dyad to a triad. And because that was the beginning, and I did that during my first pregnancy. So, because I was very interested in how a couple becomes a family,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and so uh, I think that's when I began to think about family as a, a way of uh, of solving problems, as well as creating problems. You know? Yes. So, so uh, I think probably I would say that I became a family therapist and. As soon as I finished graduate school in, in the early 1970s.
0: Yeah, and that was really the 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 heyday of family therapy, and really kind of you know a lot of a lot of movement and a lot of exciting things going on in that field.
1: Yes, yes, I was very lucky enough to
0: be a charter member of
1: the American Family Therapy Academy, and meet a lot of the people who were writing about it. So, so I was, uh, and then in actually immediately after graduate school. I uh, went to the Tavistock Clinic in London Mm -hmm. and did postgraduate training there. And that was also very influential uh, because I had been particularly at Loyola, learned a lot of psychoanalysis and the Tavistock Clinic at that time was very strong in that. Uh, But uh, I was very lucky that Sal Menuchin was there uh, for three months of medical and I started following him. And I had been quite um, shocked uh, in the the, uh, child department there um, because in ground rounds, uh, many of the therapists uh, were presenting the work with children. Uh They were never, never seeing the parents. The parents were seen by the social worker. and, uh, And they would make all kinds of hypotheses about the parents, usually quite dysfunctional, usually quite negative. Yeah, kind of apologizing. Yes, Mm -hmm. yeah, without ever meeting the parents because they wanted the child to have transference towards them and they wanted, you know, to not be disturbed in any way in terms of understanding the inner life of the child.
0: And the therapist being a good attachment figure.
1: Exactly, exactly, yes. And I thought that was an injustice to the parents. Mm -hmm. Not only because I was a young parent myself at that time, but also because I thought, you know, it's like this is very hypothetical what they think is happening, you know, rather than really touching the reality of the child's life, which the child, of course, will go back every day to the parents. right?
3: Mm
1: -hmm. So that's, I think, when I really began to... To want to do family work, and I came back to Chicago uh-huh. and became part of the family systems program at the Institute of Juvenile Research, and I stayed there for almost nine years. Wow, great! So, so that was really the basis of my training, and everybody went through there: Carl Whitaker, wow. uh, Haley. You know, they were lecturing; they were being invited to do that. And I, you know, sort of began to think of it as um, it, it, it very important, you know, very instructive, very nurturing from an intellectual point of view, but at the same time, too many directions in which to go.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: and because we were working with a uh um, very indigent, very uh, no, poor population of, of whites, uh, Latinos and Blacks in the west side of Chicago. Mm. Uh, uh, the Philadelphia Child Guidance Clinic approach seemed very appropriate. Yeah. So in 1976, I went for a summer to Philadelphia to study there. Oh, great. So I have a strong basis on structural family therapy from that experience. You know? And, uh, and then I went for a course at uh, MRI, you know, which um, no longer that program is strategic like it used to be, but I had a a month of that work there and so, so that was, and so it felt a little bit like the parable of the Chinese parable of uh, all the people touching an elephant and having a part of it, you know, so, um, but It was
0: integrating, right? And kind of learning from all those different perspectives. Uh, Uh, So it sounds like you got incredible training.
1: Yeah. So so it served me very well, because then I could see that I could use different things for different families. and So it was and it was a great. Yeah. And during those years, you know, work and in Chicago, I also became a very socio-politically active mm-hmm. and uh, there was psychologists for social responsibility uh, there was a, a fantastic speech that Martin Luther King gave to the APA that influenced me a lot you know because he really encouraged psychologists to uh, create a society for creative maladjustment and, and it was like humorous, like creative maladjustment. But he then d- described that it was creative maladjustment uh, to fight back a society that discriminated against people that affected their mental health through racism, through you know, classism. And so Uh, And there was all the gender issues at that time, too. You know, we we keep on revisiting the same issues and hopefully improving a little bit each time. But, you know, they come back. And so uh, the whole issue of women's liberation was very important at that time, too. And I joined the group and continue to be in touch with those women, actually. So that's, uh, yeah. So, and that has also you know, influenced my work a lot. And,
3: social uh, justice.
1: Yes, 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 absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of what has happened in the cultural competence world is that we talk about, you know, culture in ways that are, you know, quite fixed and stereotyped and um, and conflated with social justice. And I really yeah. do think that they require different interventions, you know, and different thinking
0: when we see families. So hopefully that's happening more and more, You know, the difference. Separating those two pieces out, yeah. the, the cultural competence and the social justice pieces. Yes, yes.
1: Yeah, what is cultural diversity? You know, and we need to study that, but we also need to understand social justice and how they interact. And sometimes, yes. you know, yeah. Definitely. So, um, so, you know, um, I think when you met me um, that my my belief is that it must have been about 2010 when it it was in Northern California, Probably,
0: yeah, probably around then.
1: Yes. And I thought that at that time I spoke uh, about what you said, uh, but maybe the title was "One Size Doesn't Fit All."
0: Mm, I think so.
1: Yeah, and uh, and it's possible that you know at that time uh, that, and I still today I think what I mean by that is that we tend to um, we have tended and and unfortunately still today um, used. Um, knowledge, let's call it that way, that is developed in, even within family therapy, as as universally applicable, Uh as it fits everybody. And so for instance, I was telling you earlier that I grew up very much in a three generational family. My grandparents were incredibly important to me, I saw them every day. And, uh, and when you look at what is it that we do in actual family work, we utilize the principles that apply very well to nuclear families uh-huh. but not don't apply so well to very large sibling groups yeah. to you know three generational families where grandparents should be part of the therapy uh-huh. and so uh things like that you know the fact that we tend to develop things that are good for white middle class nuclear families sure. and then Translate them fast mm-hmm. into thinking that families, they're families of color or or a different religion with a large number of children uh, that, uh, and sometimes three and four generations living together because parents tend to have children much younger when they come from lower socioeconomic levels, and then we just think, oh no, you have to pay more attention to this child. Yeah. No. Child is being when this child is being taken care of by many other people, older siblings. Mm-hmm. So I think all those things are very important for family therapists to understand, you know, that one size doesn't fit all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Some uh, uh, Jim Kime, uh, uh, is part of my group and we talk about sometimes he wrote about kind of the hard side and the soft side of hierarchy. The hard yeah. side of structure and rules and so on, and the soft side, the attachment, the relationship, who, sues whom, and oftentimes in uh, multi-generational families, that the grandparents may be, you know, providing that that kind of attachment and kind of you know um, uh, warmth and so on, whereas the parents might be providing more of the structure, or you know that these these roles maybe kind of, um, you know, m- held by different parts of the system, rather than kind of just saying, feeling like one person has to hold all of that together, and oftentimes that's a, a lot of difficulties of families that immigrate to the United States, because sometimes they leave that generation in their their country that they came from, and then now are trying to learn how to deal yeah. with kind of creating more of that balance or shifting to meet the needs of the yeah, kids. That's an excellent description,
1: yes, that you know, that covers both the issue of, of family structure and also the evolution of those things, you know, and how, yeah, in, in, you know, with immigration. So, and the other way in which one size doesn't fit all is that within groups, you know, say the Latino group or the African-American group or the Asian groups, there's enormous variability. Yes. So when when we are given a number of, characteristics from an ethnic focus point of view, uh, it doesn't take into account the multidimensionality of you know, every group, really. Yeah. Many, many subgroups within every group. So I have, uh, if we go back to sort of my historical development professionally, I think Monica McGoldrick, like you mentioned, I think and uh, um, invited me to write in the book on the family life cycle, and so it was uh, my first chapter publication in, it, in an edited book, and um, and and I did write also in the ethnicity and family therapy book, and tried uh, you know hard to just look at only the cultural piece, yeah. but then in 1983 I published and edited my first edited book, which was Cultural Perspectives in Family Therapy.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And at that time, it's a small book uh, by Aspen Systems Corporation. And in that book, I invited uh, several family therapists, the younger ones at that time, mm-hmm. like Jay Lapin and then Raul Montauvo uh, from Award, to write chapters in that, in that book that had to do with race, with class, Ethan uh, Movernal wrote um, on class uh, and on rural and um, urban families. So it was a much broader way of looking at culture. Yes,
0: yes. And
1: that, and that remained that way for me that you really have to look at all of those dimensions and not just yeah, the
0: intersectionality.
1: Yeah, exactly,
0: exactly. Oh, exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah, I yeah. called it ecological context at that time, but it's the intersectionality yeah. of all those issues. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think that you know cultural competency is not just knowing kind of uh, the bullet points about these different cultures, but both kind of the larger macro culture, the ethnic culture, as well as the micro culture of the person's experience and kind of the edic piece. But and also, I don't know what your thoughts are. But I also think about especially as a white, you know, cisgender male therapist, um, that also looking at one's privilege that one's bringing into the work rather than just focusing on how the other is other.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. And that you know, that brings us to uh, the the idea of cultural humility mm-hmm. because cultural humility, which in fact was something developed within uh, the the group or or the the discipline, say that that I'm very involved now, which is uh, family medicine, you know? and uh, it, it is family medicine that first came up with the idea of cultural humility teaching physicians. That they needed to understand how much power they have in that relationship, and be aware, you know, of the fact that the client should be more of an expert on their own lives, you know, the patient, and uh, so cultural humility is both understanding that you bring it, which is another way in which one size doesn't fit all, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the, whatever they, the the provider uh, thinks, it's just it's also culturally. That. you know and so to to understand that what what are your cultural values what are and what is your privilege like you said so it's both the diversity and the power issue
0: yeah and i always think that you know and when i'm supervising or teaching is that you know when we kind of run up against like oh it should be this way kind of in our head that's the cue to actually step back and get curious because of yeah. all- might be superimposing our own beliefs and values onto the client's experience, and then getting curious, we can oftentimes learn about where that may not be fitting. Um,
1: yes. Yes. And be careful not to impose your
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah.
0: And then you created a model for actually looking at all these aspects of culture. Um, I think you called it the Mecca model, right? The multi dimensional ecological comparative approach.
1: Uh, I actually, let's see, we make a little bit of history. Um, I started uh, with presenting the model in 1995 in a family process article mm. called Training to Think Culturally. Mm-hmm. And uh, the basic idea was that by having uh, either a universal approach or everybody is thinking, or having it a particularistic approach where each person is different, Mm -hmm. both of which are are valid um, in that we do have a lot of similarities. And in fact, you know, we also have very significant differences. Each one of us is unique and and, uh, singular. Um, But sometimes, you know, I give the example of we share 99.9% of our DNA. biologically and also psychologically, we have a lot of similarities. Uh, and But it's also true that our thumbs are, each one is different, and that's why we can identify an individual that way. Mm-hmm. And I think therapists need to absolutely know both things, the universal processes and, and also investigate what's particular about the person. And then yep. we had the ethnic focus approach, which gave us a lot of information, Uh, about various ethnic groups and cultures. Uh, But I thought that that we need yet another approach that combined those three, in Mm. the sense that we could ask, what difference to really make a difference to us as therapists? You know, things like foods or rituals, we can find out from people if it's necessary, but they're not really essential to the processes Mm. of therapy. But I came up with four things in which I think um, they're sort of like vessels without content necessarily, uh, where we can investigate those four dimensions or domains. Mm-hmm. And they are migration acculturation, which generally has been neglected in cultural competence, mm-hmm. as migration specific competency. Uh, then ecological context, you know, everything that has to do with how everyday life of people is influenced by the environment they live in, uh-huh. and uh, then a family organization, which I think it does vary across cultures, and uh, and family life cycle that it also has its own values and norms and, and uh, planning for transitions. Uh,
3: Mm-hmm.
1: so um, so i came up with those four uh, domains in which i believe uh, uh there are there are uh differences and also similarities mm-hmm. that's why and i call that in a rather complicated way uh the multi-dimensional comparative ecological approach mm-hmm. my, my, my ecological comparative. approach. Mm-hmm. And uh, multi-dimensional is because we have to take into account everything that intersectionality today takes
3: race, mm-hmm.
1: to, you know, class, uh, religion, political ideology, sexual orientation, all of those, and so that's why culture is multi-dimensional. Yeah, and um, then um, I think that. The the ecological part, of course, is what I already described as as people's social circumstances, and comparative is because I thought that by having so many dimensions Mm -hmm. within the focused approach, it would be hard to compare the therapist with the client, the including the supervisor with the therapist and the client. Sure. So. So these days, I actually call the majority of my workshops um, psychotherapy as a multicultural encounter, mm. because it isn't like, with cultural competence, we have to know about the culture of the other. And yeah. there's a kind of otherness that is established in the beginning, you know, by studying about the other, instead mm-hmm. of spying about self. Of yeah. The yeah. And uh, so, but uh, then I, by doing that, I sort of invited a in knowing and not knowing attitude mm-hmm. towards culture. Like I know that something may be going on when it comes to migration, ecological context, and the organization of family But I don't know exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. So I could ask about those domains. In the uh, slides that you're gonna put in line uh, in online. The last one is something that people have begun to use as an intake form uh-huh. uh where the four dimensions or so the four domains are are something that therapists can fill out while they're talking to to their client. Uh, but they can also do it by the templates. Sure. Or they can even do it together with the client and the family. Mm-hmm. And you know, put it like a big sheet of paper on the wall or in a blackboard. Yeah. And write Great. And, and usually it tells you then where, where the issues might be you know, mm-hmm. uh, that people want to work on. And one can also ask would you like us to start? with, you know, your transitions that have to do with generational differences and migration?
3: You
1: know? mm-hmm. Or should we start with the fact that you are a large family, and, you know, rather than a small family, sure. and have issues with this with your extended family?
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Oh, great. Yeah. And having those conversations together as a family, which may, you know, kind of bring some things to the forefront, forefront that maybe, you know, um, yeah, can be good conversation or maybe other parts haven't really talked about out loud or so on. And I think, like you're saying, that kind of interplay between the therapist and the client, because I, I think that, like you're saying, and particularly me, now, you know, as a white, cisgender, male, heterosexual, you know, person with you know m- multiple levels of privilege that... As a therapist, my work is to be aware of myself and also my privilege and and rather than just the focus of uh focus on how somebody else might be culturally different because mm-hmm. that, that's so important, like you're saying, is that interplay between the therapist and our client, rather than just kind of focusing on the client being different and understanding those differences.
1: Yeah, and so that's much more about cultural humility than about cultural competence, which you're yeah, your awareness of both, you know, your, your possible differences in, in values, cultures, uh, but also your, your power differential. So in a way that helps you to equalize the relationship more. Definitely. Uh, you could even say things like, You know, for me, culturally, it would work this way, but I'd like to understand more how it would work for you to do this, or Mm
3: -hmm.
1: or what people in your culture would advise you. uh,
3: Yeah,
1: how to deal with your daughter, or how to approach it. Yeah.
0: yeah, And I think about that, too, when when teaching or supervising that oftentimes when the therapist um, is thinking, oh, well, it should be this way or so on, or, or things aren't going right or so on, rather mm-hmm. than actually moving forward. That's the moment to step back and actually be curious, because right. you know, when you think like, why is that happening that way? It, it doesn't seem right or something like that. Then we may be impo- uh, imposing some of our own cultures or assumptions and, and being curious. And kind of oftentimes sharing that in a transparent, one down way may help actually open up a a conversation and a deeper understanding. But again, rather than saying like, you know, how are you different from me? More saying, this is the way I think. I'm wondering if that is similar or different from your experience.
1: Yes, yes. And you know, you mentioned curiosity. It's a a very good idea to have that kind of openness of asking and not assuming that you know, or not assuming that you have the right way. And I've seen, unfortunately, sometimes I've seen therapists, say, for example, on the uh, belief, it may not be incorrect belief that the person should take medication. Mm-hmm. And but then they, they, they would interpret as resistance, the kind of reluctance to do that, instead of asking, so, you know, why do you feel this way? Are there other things you're doing? Or, uh, you know, it, it, tell me more about this. Because I've seen therapists like, why can't, why can't you do that? I and mean, you know, shrug their shoulders. Yeah. You know, in a, in a way that is not so, totally respectful. So curiosity and respect are very very important. You know? Definitely. Yes. And many times people, many people from different cultures are. Sufficiently acculturated that they know that we are providing a service that may be somewhat different that it would be in their countries. And maybe they still want to have both. You know, they're exploring what is called the dual system of treatment. Yeah, definitely. So, having a conversation about all of that is it. and gaining the trust, right? Building trust mm-hmm. by doing that. Um so uh but I uh, you know, I don't don't want to forget about the issue of Comparison, because mm-hmm. this is also an instrument that allows you, uh, as a therapist, to kind of imagine yourself in the same thing, in the same domain.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So do you have any experience of immigration? Does your family have it? Did your Three generations ago, uh, had so sort of in a way, you know, again, it humanizes you by being able to compare on the same domains, you know, rather.
0: When I found, I know that I found your work very uh, powerful, and and when I was um, in grad school and thinking Mm -hmm. about my own experience of you know, migration, which again, I I was born in the United States, um, but I, you know, moved away from home for college and then graduate school and so on. And so very different experience than somebody who came from a whole different country or so on. But I mean, part of our work as therapists is to be able to imagine what that might be like, to be able to connect with our own sense of feeling disconnected, maybe from our family or from our home, or, you know, kind of uh, needing to all of a sudden build new social supports and these kinds of things again on on much of a a, a much lower level of my own experience but then kind of connecting that to you know my understanding and my experience of my clients because you know we can't truly understand our clients if we can't connect with that part of ourselves that has felt a similar feeling. Yes
1: absolutely very well put and we could use that metaphor for many types of relocation even just Leaving home from the west coast to go to the east coast for college.
3: Yeah. Even
1: you know, if you have that privilege, it doesn't mean that that first year is—it's a very difficult adaptation right, of knowing a lot of new things that you didn't know before. You know, So, so, um, and and it is also the case that uh, supervisors have their own cultures, and many times, including. Their own belief systems about mm-hmm. theory. Having a comparison, a way to compare themselves both to the supervisee and, and the family they're talking about it together. It's, it's, it's something that organized what we're thinking.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, recently I've been giving workshops that titled our supervision as co vision. Mm. instead of supervision as being a superior way of seeing things that mm. the supervisee has to adapt but one that is a collaboration and and in which both people and the family are transparent about their values or beliefs or sure. their experiences you know.
0: So not only kind of the therapist working with the family family and looking at similarities and differences together, but also the supervisor and the therapist, as well as the supervisor and the family that they're discussing, you know, kind of those those multiple levels of, of transparency and um, curiosity.
1: You know, the supervisors that I have talked to say that when that is happening, when they use this way of talking to each other, um, that their anxiety decreases, mm. that they're feeling more like they're human beings, you know, their thoughts and their values and their feelings, and so uh, it is a, a good way to start, you know, rather than what are your problems with with the family you're seeing and
3: how can I fix.
0: Definitely. Um, Definitely. Um, Well, great. Well, these are wonderful resources and definitely be helpful for clinicians as well as clinicians and trainings and supervisors, uh, you know, and one to look at these kind of multiple aspects that are the client's experience and affecting the client, as well as also reflecting on how that interplays with the therapist's um, experience um, and supervisor and supervisee.
1: Yes. And it, it, I believe that it is also a way to avoid just using stereotypes, cultural stereotypes, because you are engaged in a different process of understanding rather than imposing. So, so uh, I think that's all oh, I, you know, um, I think it sends the message that we all are encompassing in this fourth domain In similar and different ways and so uh, it avoids the danger of a single story Mm. both for white people because we also should avoid having a single story for what white privileges or you know uh, or superior positions are and uh, and what it is to be determined
0: I think that you know one of the things I thought was really important about and I'll, I'll let you kind of set it up and everything but was it was interesting because it was it's focused on collaboration, but also I, I think that it makes an important point of, of, the, of the therapist also being directive while at the same time collaborative. And I think that that kind of aspect I thought was just so interesting as kind of a melding, because I think some therapists get a little worried about how they're collaborating with clients and also around working around culture or working around the issues that the, the clients are dealing with and, and bridging those gaps. Um
1: yeah. Yes. Well, I could start by giving you a little bit of a context of that That'd article. Yes, yeah. Um, so the article I I think is called communicative practices uh uh that uh center or decenter clients voices something mm-hmm. close to that. That's. Uh, I think uh, I think it's called centering the client's voice, right? Centering the client's voices. Um and uh, in um, the, the last two falls before the pandemic, I was in uh, the Harvard Medical School during the, during the autumn
3: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, as a visiting professor in the Multicultural Practices unit mm-hmm. uh, that is directed by Margarita Alegría. And, uh, and if you're visiting, they don't just let you visit yeah you have come up with a project mm. and uh, and use their data in the project and they had uh this research going on they had several types of research but this the research that attracted me was one where they were training mental health workers or and ther- therapists primarily on something that came from the medical field called shared decision making mm-hmm. and uh and they were uh, training you know, hundreds of therapists. Yeah. And, and so they had a lot of quantitative data, but they hadn't done any qualitative work. And so I wanted to take a few of those cases uh, that uh, and study uh, in-depth the processes that went on. They had lots and lots of audio tapes. So I could have could ask them to do transcripts of the uh, audio tapes.
3: Uh-huh.
1: And, So shared decision-making is something that uh, medical students are learning Mm. about uh, setting the agenda uh, with the patient rather than just the the doctor, you know, saying, this is what you need to do.
0: Rather than just Uh, talking at them.
1: Yes, talking at them in a sort of paternalistic way, you know, and sort of not aware of what you were saying earlier about their privilege and their power. And so shared decision-making equalizes a little bit more yeah. this the therapy situation. So that is in some ways the first step to, towards collaboration. Yeah. So one of the first things, so I came up in my analysis with I think five different things, five different themes, right? Yeah. By analyzing the processes. And the first one was how many times therapists come in and don't, really say, uh, what would you like to talk about today? Mm-hmm. Uh, they would um, say things like, um, so what happened the last time? You were telling me last time, such and such. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, so what happened with that? What happened when you went to your child's school? Or what happened when you, the social worker interviewed you? And so that set up already, the agenda. Mm -hmm. rather than saying, what would you like to talk about today? How would you like, what would you like us to do together? Right? And so that, and the idea of revisiting the previous session certainly was, you know, a way of connecting. Meaning Mm -hmm. I know you, you know, I have an alliance with you. Bridging. Bridging, yes. Which wasn't necessarily bad, but I was surprised at how many times the therapists that run with that and kept on asking more questions about the meeting that they had or rather than giving any voice, centering the voices. Because in some ways you invite change Mm -hmm. by by saying, what would you like to talk about today? Rather than saying, we're talking about only the same themes. Well, people change. Maybe they have a new preoccupation Mm -hmm. or maybe they resolve what they did before or it can come back later in the session. So it's very important. That, so I started thinking, I think at that time, like we all talk about collaboration, that's our new, new way of thinking, right? Sure. Uh, we all talk about the patients being experts on their lives rather than us coming in as experts. But how do we actually do it? So mm-hmm. in this more microscopic look, I was able to come up with some ideas about how do people, which are the therapists that then score high yeah. in shared decision making. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the ones who scored well um, the second theme uh, was just simply looking and it was easy to do a percentage of time that therapists taught mm-hmm. in relation to percentage of time that the um, client taught
3: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, there was there was one of the cases where, woman was very, very distressed over the fact that her children had been taken away from her. Yeah. And and that she was doing her best to bring them back with her behavior, with Mm -hmm. her stopping some of the more uh, uh, negative things. And uh, the therapist just talked the whole time Mm. about uh, what she should be doing, you know, from mm. take a shower, uh, stop doing this, you know, the, and 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 the patient, you know, the client was saying all the time,
3: mm,
1: mm, mm, you know, like uttering something that was uh, helping the therapist in a way by yeah. saying, oh, I, I understand you, but, mm. you know, was she going to do it?
0: Yeah, being maybe somewhat agreeable, but not necessarily emphatically like, yes, that's that's what I need. Yeah, yes, that's-
1: or elaborating or yeah. asking a question, like yeah. well, it's hard for me to do that, or yeah. you know, anything. So um it's not necessarily that it has to be equal balance, but mm-hmm. it's an important thing to look at, you know, how much space mm-hmm. are you leaving for an exchange or mm-hmm. even for hearing the client's voice?
0: Yeah. And it was uh, in that article, too, you kind of pointed out like there was, you know, one one extreme where it was the therapist talking the majority of the time, then also another extreme where it was just the client talking the majority of the time and the therapist not really kind of, you know, guiding or kind of helping shift. And so that that creating some balance, which, again, like you're saying, doesn't necessarily need to be 50 50, but but not necessarily kind of one extreme or the other.
1: Yes. Yes, they both of those approaches seem less successful in terms of really coming up at the end of the session with some kind of collaborative sense that we've done this together and we can move forward. And as you were saying earlier, it's not that the therapist cannot uh, present their point of view mm-hmm. um, but and, and and present even their expert point of view, but it's also, and this is where I think the work of uh, Hardin Anderson is very important in on collaborative therapy about presenting things Uh, In a more tentative way, yes, Uh, rather than this is the way things are, you know, Mm -hmm. that that uh, expressing some sort of relativity, you know, like I myself many times say, well, I don't know if this will fit you, yes, or you know, I don't know how how it, it it would work out for you so I I wouldn't want to hear that but uh, sometimes I heard that it's helpful for people to do this Mm -hmm. or I've heard that when it comes to uh, step families they do better if they wait a little bit longer until the step parent is more incorporated Mm -hmm. and what do you think of that idea so so it's tentative you know our
0: knowledge is not necessarily the truth with a capital t that we have ideas but they the the assumption that it's not necessarily going to fit for everybody but seeing and and creating space for the client to say no actually that doesn't fit or so on without feeling like they're they're being yeah uh, contrary or, or whatever it might be
1: yeah and you know that fits very well with your insightful comment it isn't that the therapist has to abandon their position of, mm. of having something to contribute, that's not what collaboration means. You know, it's a mm-hmm. contribution without imposing, right? Yeah. Uh, and so uh, it's not an uh, absolute or a certainty that you're presenting. Mm-hmm. And and that I think uh, collaborative meaning-making out of the situation fits well with that. You know? And that's mm-hmm. the fourth topic in that uh, most people come up with what uh, what is the problem that it's, uh, it, it's uh, you know that you're suffering from, mm-hmm. which is very different than diagnostic labeling. Yes, in some of these cases that you read in the article, people are being diagnosed in mm-hmm. a very direct way. You know, uh, like uh, you suffer from an anxiety disorder, mm-hmm. or if you don't do this. you're you're going to, oh yes, what was it? There was a therapist that was saying, um, well, you attempt to repress or or suppress what your real feelings are, but it's like a volcano waiting to erupt and it's going to blow the lid off and Mm. then where are you going to be? And so she gave this metaphor, you know, uh, of something. How things are going to go. Yes, how things are going to go and what you're doing wrong. Mm-hmm. You no, know? and so it was not focusing on strengths. No, it was yeah. not focusing on the possibilities of uh, of working with this vulnerability mm-hmm. in a constructive way that comes from the conversation.
0: Yeah, in uh, in motivational interviewing, they I think they call it the writing reflex. That the therapist wants to get the client on the right track and will sometimes, yeah, use something like if you go down that path, this bad thing's going to happen. So to kind of get the person to change their experience. But, but again, like you're saying, it's not collaborative. It's not staying with the client's experience and kind of helping them instead, kind of saying that's wrong and this is right, um, which which can create that distance and, and lead to losing the client.
1: Yeah. And you know, I described in the article, uh, because I don't want people to leave with the impression that I'm being critical of this therapist, Uh, because what happened was this therapist was trained in shared Mm decision-making, and then had to listen to her on tape, which by the way, if we go back to my old, old history, listen. To your tapes or seeing your own videotapes is an incredible way to learn. And so, this therapist, as well as everybody that was in the study except the control group, went back and then had to talk to a coach. Yes. And he came into that coaching session saying, I realized that I'm not letting the patient talk or Mm -hmm. the the, the client Um, because. I, I go and say, do this and do that and do this and do that. And maybe she was doing it out of her own anxiety, you know, because yeah. they have, like you say, they want to fix things. And, uh, but she recognized it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So training in, in collaboration, it's a very important thing.
0: Definitely. But yeah. yeah. I think too, I don't know about you, but I know I still have that at times. And sometimes I'll be like afterwards, oh, I got caught up there and like, I, I miss the client, you know, and oftentimes we'll then, Want to circle back around, or the next session? Say, you know, gosh, I, I missed that because as therapists, we make these mistakes, um, or yeah. yeah, our our own worry gets a hold of us at times. Yes, yes, yeah. And that transparency and collaboration to come back and say, I, yeah. I misstepped.
1: Exactly, exactly. I mean, she could come the next session and say, I'm sorry that I sort of talked so much. I want to hear, you know, yeah. from you and you know uh, what works best for you, and that you know takes me to the. Um, go const- constructing the behavioral tasks, because we all give homework. I don't know how current that is today, but but I think you know, many therapists, are, when I hear the tapes, do, do suggest things, yeah. And so, and the issue again, if we go back, particularly with working with low income clients, but but everybody, you know, the reviewers of this article they all said. But this applies to not only low income, it could be, it could be for all therapists, mm-hmm. not all social classes. Uh, and that is, if you prescribe something to be done, you really need to check uh, what are the elements of the context of the client that will allow them to do it or not, not do it, mm-hmm. or whether they need to you know, twist it, shift it, do it more in a way that would work for them or could fit their lifestyle, no? and uh, so uh, and so it means that co-constructing the, the behavioral task rather than saying do this.
3: Yes,
1: and and that to me can be classified as collaborative. And you know? but we arrive together at the task.
0: But I think that's so important because I think, yes, sometimes there's extremes on either sides where the therapist is like, okay, this is what you're going to do without necessarily having that collaboration. Or the other side where the therapist is being so non-directive or, um, you know, I I originally focused in more postmodern approaches, narrative therapy and so on when I first started training, but I'm also a very kind of engaged person and so on. And so I was, you know, I had a supervisor or a, a teacher who was like, why don't you just teach this mom timeouts? And I was like, oh, okay, I did that. And all of a sudden things changed. I've been trying to bring that resource out for several sessions. So, but I think that kind of collaboration around bringing in skills as well as drawing out resources and that one doesn't necessarily negate the other in in having a collaborative relationship with your client. And so, and not that that's necessarily based in narrative or so on or Deborah, but I, I think that aspect that I think particularly as a learning therapist in the beginning, trying to be respectful, but, uh, you know, finding that kind of balance and being able to bring yourself, but, but keeping that one down position. Um, and
1: and... yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You're so right. Because there's also the possibility that clients do want that they want to hear about the skills, but they just, you know, they are, they are coming for that. They're paying for that. And so Uh, you know, if you remain silent and just not provide sufficient uh, content.
0: Yeah, I actually just read an article recently on some research around that. And uh, it was, I forget exactly, it was 60 or 70% of clients preferred a more directive therapist. um, And only about 10 or 12% preferred non-directive. But when they evaluate the therapist, the majority of the therapists preferred a non-directive approach. So there was this kind of miss, but clients are coming in for help and needing something. And so I think that that kind of, you know, those aspects that you're talking about, like the agenda around kind of balancing the talking and not being too, too yeah. one way or another. And again, that collaborating around ten- tentativeness and relativity and not that we necessarily are the holders of the truth, but really collaborating on that meaning making. And then that kind of evolves to that co construction of the task and what's actually going to be done to potentially help yeah. create change.
1: Yes, yes. And so, it could be, uh, you know, it's important to really uh, understand that you're hearing both voices, right? Yeah. That like they're bringing both types of strengths, the ones that the client brings and the ones that the therapist brings. Do you want me to talk a little bit about what else I'm doing right now?
0: Yeah, I'd love to hear what else you're doing. I mean, uh, I don't know if we have enough time to get into it. One of the things that struck me, one of the things that you talked in the training about was the cultural mask which I thought has really stuck with me. Um, I don't know if you remember, like about sometimes a client might say, well, this is part of my culture. And then that's kind of the sign for the therapist to totally back off. But sometimes kind of finding where, but that that might be oh, a whole bigger subject or
3: something. Yes. In a way yeah. to be able
0: to listen and acknowledge the culture, but at the same time to kind of work beyond that or through that or, but again, this is, that's a, that's a big topic for, less than 12 minutes.
1: Okay, okay.
0: Whatever you Uh, think would be, yeah, where you want to go next.
1: um, Well, I don't, you know, what I'm doing right now, I don't know how applicable it will be to to many therapists. So, but um, if we go back to what you were saying in a different way about the cultural mask, Mm -hmm. I think it is important to understand that uh, we should not idealize culture. Mm -hmm. That uh, that culture uh, sometimes is you know at, a, at its extremes can have negative consequences mm-hmm. you know we know that about for instance the oppression of women you know? yes that one could say is you know it's part of the culture mm-hmm. uh, or the domination of males we can say is a part of the culture but it's not mm-hmm. A part of the culture that we should support, yeah. and and sometimes you know <laughs> clients will say, "I can't help it, you know, uh, it's just how my culture is," yeah. and and that it becomes you know it's like it closes the issue,
3: sure. and also
1: I think you know uh, therapists might say, you know, for example, I gave the example of children being intermediaries, yes, with the parents in immigration situations. Well, yes, in many ways uh, that is not a negative in the sense that it creates responsibility. Even in young children, it gives them an important sense of agency in the family.
0: Mm-hmm. But at
1: the same time, you know, if then you know, girls are always cleaning the house and yeah. they're and you know and they're always serving the boys or and they, they are so it is part of the culture that mm-hmm. they should be helping the parents, but. When is it too much, you know, or yeah. when is it that it is uh, impinging on their development or mm-hmm. or their sense of autonomy? So uh, culture is a tricky thing, you know, that that yeah. uh, one could even discuss with our clients. Is this a- that's,
0: that's the piece of opening up that conversation? Because I think in the in the conference uh, you had <laughs> talked about that cultural mask and that sometimes the client might say, "Well, this is part of the culture," and sometimes the therapist will say, "Okay, I can't, I can't." Deconstruct that with them because I, I need to back away from that and say the person saying, oh, well, you know, being machismo is part of my culture or so on, but kind of to the extreme, like kind of, you know, as a as a justification for, you know, the domestic violence or whatever it might being when it may actually be a distortion of kind of what the that aspect of culture is. And being able to kind of take the time to understand and kind of deconstruct that and really look at that together, um, rather than just, you know, uh, especially if the therapist is from a different culture, you know, kind of stepping back and saying, okay, well, we, we can't look at that because I, I'm not of that culture, whatever it might be.
1: Yes, so mistaking perhaps the idea of respect, curiosity and respect, but yes, I'm curious about that, but also I'm very respectful and I won't touch it. Right? Mm-hmm. And when, so, you know, I don't know if you've ever come across an article that I wrote on cultural constructions of machismo. It's called- Oh, no. it, it, uh, Yeah, it's called The Devil Never Sleeps. Mm. It's a family process. And it's about changing constructions of masculinity among latino men and the differences between malignant machismo and mm. benign machismo mm. and uh, and how sometimes you know very powerful domineering men will really advance the idea that well you know i'm i have all these benign elements of machismo so why are you criticizing me for it and also they have learned to say i you know to to a, a different sort of mask, I am not a machista. I'm not I'm not a male who, but you know they may be in other as in some aspects, mm-hmm. but by saying I'm not, they also stop you. Yeah. So it's important for therapists not to be intimidated by you know those statements and to just say, well, oh, I want to know more about it. You know? Yeah. yeah um, that, that... And the other people, what do other people in your family think? about this, you know. Yeah. If your if your daughter was here, your son was here, your you know, your wife was here, what would they say about
0: this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and really understanding the clients again, that kind of microcultural experience. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that too that this this also you know, extends beyond just, you know, um, specific cultural groups such as uh, Latinx or African-American or so on, that also, you know, all these intersectionalities um, are, are also happening in, you know, white kind of you know uh, euro caucasian uh, american families too around gender around uh and, and i think you've talked about too that oftentimes socioeconomic status is also kind of you know not looked at as much and how that interplays although lower socioeconomic status because of systemic racism includes a lot of um uh people of color but also mm-hmm. that a multitude of clients of, of different race, background, um, also, mm-hmm. uh, have these experiences and that cl- clients or therapists need to be understanding and, and again, collaborating around. Absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a very good
0: point. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so about yeah, the other thing that I'm learning from my current work is, uh, a new element that, um, and, and my teaching to medical students that it's that it been labeled by one of the medical students fireside chats, mm. you know, like, like Rousseau used to do. Uh-huh. And, uh, and that they're also very collaborative in the sense that the interpreters, in this case, you know, they're Spanish speaking interpreters and medical students and the psychologists are, you know a marriage and family therapist to get together with them and discuss uh, issues of mental health mm-hmm. you know that are you know, there are most you know, culturally respectful and sensitive but they are done in a way that is very also collaborative in the sense of like a fireside chat you know I yes we have some expertise yeah. but we also would like to hear how how can you apply it. Mm. In your setting. Yeah. And I've been I have started, and one of the things that we have learned over the, all these years of working in a in an immigrant, you know, underserved population clinic, a medical clinic that now incorporates mental health, um that uh is that flexibility of time yeah. and flexibility of space mm-hmm. are extremely important through contact therapy with Uh, low-income families, because we can't really expect people that don't have transportation, that don't have really working computers and cell phones to be able to act in the same way as middle-class and upper-class people. So I think those are another way where uh, some of our structures for therapy need to be questioned yeah, uh, you know, uh, when we work with different, it's another no one size doesn't fit
0: Yeah, yeah. How do we accommodate or how do we help work around those barriers to be able to provide those services yes. to clients without yes. them getting kind of yes. apologized or kicked out after missing a session or so on.
1: Yes, or interpreted as resistance. Yeah, yeah. Or, or as stigma. You know, they they don't like to come because they you know, or something yes, like they that. don't want to be called crazy. When in fact we haven't provided a, a setting yeah. that fits with their lives. Yeah.
0: So uh, okay. Well, thank you so much. This has been so wonderful to hear about what you're doing and the work that you're doing, and just you know, hearing about the evolution of your thinking. And um, I, I really encourage folks to read your article, and I because uh, I think that 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 uh, centering the voice of the client on becoming a collaborative practitioner with low-income individuals and families. And I think that you know, even beyond just the low income and so on, just again, that aspect of those five points that you are making around collaboration, because I think like you're saying, collaboration is this word that we often use, but really what does that look like in a process kind of analysis of sessions and, and really kind of looking at the nuances of that are, are so significant and important. It's a great contribution. Okay. Thank you
1: so much, Keith, for inviting me. I think you're doing a fantastic job with both, you know, how easy it is to talk to you, but also how valuable it is what you're doing in the podcast for people. So, oh, so thank you very much. Thank you for thinking about me and
0: inviting me. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Take care. Right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Don't leave, though. Perfect. No. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, great. How was that? <laughs> how was that? It was good. It was
1: good. I didn't, you know, I, I had never spoken about this article. So it was very nice to interact with you. And uh, I had sort of prepared myself to talk about Mecca, but I, you know, because I do have some new things and I should have mentioned that that have to do with uh, templates, you know, things that people can use that are very practical. But but uh so i feel sorry if you that you want too we could also schedule more time
0: and i can i can put that in
1: well tell me if you think that that's helpful uh the idea you know it's like uh that there are some instruments to, to, that you can bring to a session that have the four quadrants the four domains of that mecha. would be great
0: i think that would be awesome
1: and then you can even put those in your you know they i think you do put some things right
0: i'll put in links uh for folks too
1: that i can just provide you with one or two you know the pages
0: yes definitely sorry i jumped over to that piece uh let's see yeah let me let's look actually at our calendar because i mean i think it would be great to to get that in there because i think i
1: mean it could be 15 20 minutes you know it could be i was gonna say it might
0: it might not be very long maybe
1: 10 minutes or something yeah
0: by the way, love your background. Uh, you know, I uh, I was actually a Eastern philosophy minor in undergraduate, and I took in high school anthropology and sociology, and then sociology and anthropology in college because mm-hmm. that cultural relativism piece I think is so important. Um, you know that that's um, you know yeah. I think that it's, it adds such, and it's, you know, it adds, it, it adds. So yeah, many people it adds. don't get that experience or training. Yeah,
1: um, yeah they don't, they don't. Uh, it's, it's very nice to have it. I, I, I value
0: it, you know, so. Um, so I have some time tomorrow at 10 a.m. or Thursday at 11 a.m. if either of those times would work for you. Neither one, unfortunately. That's okay. It's- um, next Monday at 10 a.m.? Tuesday at ten a.m. or Wednesday at ten a.m. Uh, the twenty third, twenty fourth, or twenty fifth. Um, the twenty third, twenty fourth, or twenty fifth. They are all good. Okay. Uh, how
1: about then Monday the twenty third at ten?
0: That is perfect. So let me put yeah. you. In
1: the- and, I'll, and i and it's good because then I'll prepare those. Okay. Uh, so that then I can just send them to you because you know, um, and it, and it's for it's for uh, the family, the therapist,
0: and also the supervisor. That's
3: great.
0: Yeah.
3: Awesome.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. This is really great and, uh, keep up all the great work and definitely, um, you know, I'd love to chat with you more happy to, to, I forgot, did I send you the link to the motivational interviewing training? Did I, uh, you did you did yes and it was great it was great yes that's that's like right mm-hmm. along the lines of what you're doing with um, you know the, the the collaboration piece collaborative yes um, yeah.
1: and i and i actually did uh pass on uh to the uh, psychologist who was presenting with me on motivational interviewing uh-huh. and uh, i think it helped her because she her motivational interviewing training was in
0: school and was not as rich as yours, you know. Sure, sure. Good. Well, I'm glad that worked out. Yeah. And I'm actually, we recorded, the most recent one I recorded when I did it a couple weeks ago, I'm going to put that online because I got permission from the people doing the role plays. So that'll be available if, if people want to link to it or whatever, or watch it. What uh, I
1: don't recall is that I think we added, or I added to her PowerPoint, uh, a little bit of a cultural piece.
3: Mm-hmm yes to
1: the, to the motivational interviewing yeah so um but uh but yes it was great and i i did let people know that you were having a training i think too okay. right it was a couple of months ago yeah something?
0: yeah the, uh, back in july yes uh, yeah great yeah.
1: so okay, okay. wonderful
0: yeah. We'll take care
3: and i will talk to you okay. next monday okay thank
0: Bye-bye. you bye bye thank you for joining us If you're wanting to use this podcast to earn continuing education credits, please go to our website at therapyonthecuttingedge.com. Our podcast is brought to you by the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy, providing in-person and remote therapy in the San Francisco Bay Area. IAP provides training for licensed clinicians through our in-person and online programs, as well as our treatment for children, adolescents, families, couples, and individual adults. For more information, go to SF iap.com or call 415-617-5932. Also, we really appreciate feedback and if you have something you're interested in, something that's on the cutting edge of the field of therapy and think clinicians should know about it, send us an email or call us. We're always looking for the advancements in the field of psychotherapy to help in creating lasting changes for our clients.